Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now, grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of 1 John. We're in chapter 2 today as we begin this, uh, as we continue this study on authentic living. The title of this morning's message is Don't Love the World. This is penned by the same uh, apostle, the same disciple who wrote in John, his letter, uh, in, in his gospel, John, that, we're to, that God loved the world, that he gave his only son. So what's the difference here? We're going to look at unpacking this truth of what it means to love the world or not love the world in just a moment. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to follow along as I read aloud verse 12 in John chapter, 1 John chapter 2. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven because of Jesus' name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have had victory over the evil one. And I have written to you, children, because you have come to know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. And I have written to you, young men, because you are strong. God's word remains in you. You have had victory over the evil one. Verse 15. Do not love the world or the things that belong to the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. For everything that belongs to the world, the lust of the flesh... The lust of the eyes, the pride of one's lifestyle is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does God's will remains forever. What is John saying in this letter? Remember we've said that John wrote the gospel, that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then we've said that John wrote these three letters, the epistles of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. We need to understand what he means when he says world. In the Bible, you'll find three uses of that word. Sometimes when you find the word world in in Scripture, it's referring to this world we live in, this planet that we live on, this world that we live on, the planet. Other times you'll find in Scripture the word world is used to refer to the people in the world. That's what he's referring to in John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. So it can either refer to the planet or people, or the third use of the word world is what we're looking at in 1 John today. World can refer to the world system. This age that we live in, like you might say the sports world, there's a a whole set of rules and values and and ideals that that govern the sports world, or maybe the financial world. It's it's the same use of that term. It's the world system. So this world system that, by the way, as you can see from this passage, is really contrary to biblical Christianity, that's what he's referring to today, the world system. So let's look at the first truth that I think is so important. First of all, our citizenship is not here our citizenship is not here. He tells us in verse 15 that we we're, we're, do not love the world or the things that belong to the world. If anyone loves the world, love of the Father is not in him. He is saying that this world is not our home. It is not where we belong. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul said it this way. He said, they, those people focus on earthly things, the, those who don't know Christ. But our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven. 
John is addressing, I believe, believers. We'll talk about that in a minute as we look at our next, uh, next point here. But as Paul says, that you believers need to understand that this world is not your home anymore. You are not citizens of this planet in, that, in, spiritual, in the spiritual respect. You have another home, and that home is in heaven. Someone said worldliness, as John is addressing here, is not so much a matter of activity as it is a matter of attitude. It's not just what you do. It's where your heart is. It's how you think. You know, you can be a, a worldly person in your mind. You can go through all the habits that look right, but if, you're, if your mind and your heart is focused on things of the world, you have that... Um, you could wear that label as a worldly person. You've heard the saying, you can take the boy out of the country, but you can't take the country out of the boy. Um, well, it shouldn't apply to Christians. The Bible should, says it this way, and it can be said this way. You can take a, a believer out of the world system, and you must take the world system out of the believer. You can't leave it there. There's a, there's a, it really addresses the heart issue here. I heard this week about a counseling situation where a, a man had fallen into an affair in his church and the church had confronted him and they were going through the process of reconciliation and, and going through repentance and, and this man had joined a small group Bible study and had an accountability partner and had done everything the church asked him to do. But there seemed to be a sense of pride in him jumping through these hoops and sure enough, pretty soon that man went right back into that affair. And the conclusion of that situation was from that counselor was this man's heart never changed. Did you know you can change everything on the outside, but if your heart doesn't change, something's wrong. When you trusted Christ as your personal Savior, if you're a follower of Christ, if you're a believer, your heart should have changed. Your heart should no longer be longing for the things of the world. You need to understand that your citizenship is not here, it's in heaven. Let's look at the second truth here. John lists some categories of believers in verses 12 through 14. The categories of believers. Now, some have said this is a song. Some have said it's a, it's a poem. It's a psalm. Uh, maybe a, a treatise that the, the church would share. Uh, we're not sure how that's all, what John intends with this, but there's some truths that we can get from this passage here. And the first one is this. If you look at verse 12, he says, I'm writing you little children because your sins have been forgiven because of Jesus' name. Uh, the little children, literally, there means born ones. So he says, I'm writing to you who've been born of the Spirit of God, whose sins have been forgiven. And the tense of that verb means that it was, it was an action that took place in the past with the emphasis on its recurrence today. So he's saying, you were forgiven, you are being forgiven, you will be forgiven. So he's writing to believers here. But I think if you take this, this uh, analogy as he's talking about fathers and young men and children, we can look at three categories of believers that he might have been uh, alluding to. So the first one is this, mature believers. Number one, the first category, the first grouping that he might be writing to is mature believers. He says in verse 13, I am writing to you fathers because you have come to know the one who was, who is from the beginning. So he, he, he speaks of fathers there. <clears throat> then in verse 14, he, say, he speaks of fathers again. He says, I've written to you fathers because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. This emphasis is that this person is a Christian who has matured, who has experienced the Christian life, a mature believer. And by the way, just because you age in your life doesn't mean you're maturing in your Christian life. Did you know that? I had a, a lady stop me in the hallway who's uh, about my age, maybe a little bit older, and she said, Pastor, it, it, uh, I've been growing older, but I may not be that person who could be a mature believer. And, and God was speaking to her about that. Just because you're aging doesn't mean you're maturing. A mature believer is a person who experiences the Christian life. 
in obedience and walking in maturity. I love the story about Charles Haddon Spurgeon, one of the great preachers um, in England several generations ago. And when he was a teenager, he stood up to preach on the faithfulness of God. And while he was preaching about God's faithfulness, his grandfather, who was up there on the platform, in those days, everybody sat up on the platform. I'm glad we don't do that anymore. His grandfather stepped up and put his arm on his shoulder, I think, kind of stepped aside and, and said to the congregation, now, my grandson is telling you about the faithfulness of God. He said, but I, as his grandfather, stand here to bear witness of the faithfulness of God. That's the difference. It's a person who can say, I have walked in obedience, and I've, I've known, I've come to know God by experience as he's demonstrated his faithfulness to me. Mature believers. There's a second group that John mentions here when he mentions young men. We're just going to call that growing believers. Growing believers. In verse 13, I'm writing to you young men because you've had a victory over the evil one. And then in verse 14, he says, I'm writing to you young men because you are strong and God's word remains in you. And you've had victory again over the evil one. This is a person who has been saved, who does know this relationship with God, and they're growing because they apply the word of God to their daily life. They're not mature yet, but they're growing. I don't know about you, but no matter where I am in my Christian life, I want to be growing. I don't want to ever say I'm done. I don't want to ever say that I've arrived. This is a growing Christian. You may be in that category. But the third category I really feel like is the the group that John is really trying to hone in on trying to address, and these are immature believers. We have mature believers, growing believers, and uh, mature, growing, and immature. Look at verse 14. He says, I've written to you children because you've come to know the Father. Now, this word for children in verse 14 is a different word for children than the word in verse 12. Verse 12 is saying all of you are born of God, your children. But here he's talking about those who are infants who haven't grown, who haven't grown at all. That, uh, as Paul says, so, saved so as by fire. They've come to know Christ as personal Savior. They've trusted him in obedience, and they have a home in heaven prepared, but they're not walking in obedience every day. They're not growing. They're not experiencing, as a mature believer does, the Christian life in all its fruitfulness and God's faithfulness. See, what happens with a, a believer who would be categorized as immature is God begins to speak to your heart and starts to push you out of your comfort zone. When you trusted Christ as your personal Savior, I hope this was the decision you made. I hope you said, Lord, as best I know how, I'm giving you control of my life. That's the decision I made when I trusted Christ as an 18-year-old. God, as best I know how, right now, I give you complete control of my life, and I ask you to be Lord of my life. At that moment, I meant it with all my heart. Then a few weeks went by, maybe a few days. God began to speak to my heart about habits and issues and relationships. And it was at those moments that I had a choice of saying, okay, God, I'm gonna grow through this experience because I'm gonna get out of my comfort zone and I'm gonna submit to you. An immature believer gets to those places and decides not to change. Oh, yes, Lord, I gave you my life, but now you're asking me for my whatever. What I read, what I watch, how I talk, my habits, the people I hang around with, the places I go. My lifestyle, you're asking for that now, Lord? And an immature believer gets stunted in their growth and they stop right there because they're not willing to, to make those changes. In Simple Church, Tom Rainer shares a, a, a results of research. He's the research guru for our, our convention. And, and a, a research study was done back in, in the early 2000s following heart bypass patients. 
They said over 600,000 people have a heart bypass every year in America. A lot of folks. And they followed those people and began to talk to those people. And, and you know, when a person has a heart bypass, they usually have a come to Jesus meeting with their doctor. You know, the doctor says, okay, we need to talk. I've been with some of you and you've had that talk with the doctor and your spouse and we've sat there and the doctor's come out and said, now, we're gonna do this today, but you're gonna have to make some lifestyle changes. You have to quit smoking, quit drinking, quit eating fatty foods, get up off the couch and exercise. Should I move on? <laughs> and that person says, oh yeah, doctor, I, I don't want to go through this again. I'm ready. And the doctors say that that bypass is really a temporary fix. It's up to you to change your diet and your lifestyle for you to live longer and healthier. And they say that 90% of heart bypass patients don't make those changes they need to make. 90% say, I'd just like to leave it the way it is. Well, that's an immature Christian described right there. A person who says, okay, Jesus Christ has given me a heart transplant, really, right? And now I'm going to have to make some changes in my life to walk in obedience? I don't think so. That's immaturity. That's stopping in your growth. John mentions a challenge that comes to us from the world system here. So let's look at number three. The challenge that comes to us from this world system mentioned in verse 15 and verse 17 in verse 15, he says, do not love the world or the things that belong to the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. One of the tests of whether or not I'm a Christian who's leaning to worldliness is, how do I respond to the Father's love? How do I respond to the Father's love? I don't ever, ever, ever want to get over the fact that Jesus Christ gave his life for me. And that in his grace he forgave me. And he demonstrated his love, Romans 5, 8. When I was still a, you know the rest of the verse? Sinner, Christ died for me. I don't ever want to get over that. Ever. I don't ever want to get over the fact that we looked at last week, that the Bible says that, that God has poured his love out into my heart by his spirit. I don't ever want to get over that. I need to be overwhelmed with a sense of awe that my life should be lived to his glory because of his love for me. And I don't respond to his love out of, oh no, I better do this or he's going to get me. I respond to the Father's love out of gratitude and brokenness and humility. How do you respond to the Father's love? Second test of worldliness. Someone said, that, by the way, that, that worldliness will rob us of the, Father, the joy of the Father's love. Second test is responding to the Father's will. Look at verse 17. And the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does God's will, the Father's will, remains forever. Second test of worldliness is, how do I respond to the Father's will? Is there joy in my obedience? Or do I fear it? I can remember, as a brand new Christian, and God's starting to speak to me about, okay, Kevin, you said I give you my life, now let's see if you really mean it of coming up to those decisions with my friends and relationships I had and stuff that I was doing and the ways I was acting and behaving. I remember coming up to those decisions and having to make a decision. Okay, Lord, do I really want to obey you? Because if I obey you, then you're going to make me a preacher. I never thought that in those early days. Sometimes that's the case. You know, some of you are, are, are drawing the line in obedience because you're afraid if you say, Lord, I'll let you do whatever you want, he's going to make you a preacher or a missionary, 
I don't know this, but I think this, okay? Maybe 75 to 80, 90% of the time, all God wants to hear from you is, yes, Lord, whatever you want. And then he steps back and says, okay, I'm not going to take that from you or make that happen. I just wanted to know that you were willing to let me do it. I just want to know that you're willing to let me have it. Are you to that place where you're willing to say, God, I, I have this joy in doing your will, and whatever it is, I'm okay with it. That's a pretty good place to be, isn't it? To say, Lord, I'm not sure what you have for me, but I'm willing to follow you. Some of us just have to submit our plans to God's plans. You have an agenda for your life, a plan for your life, and what God wants you to do is say, I surrender my plan. You know, we've said before that it's, it's as simple as is a blank sheet of paper and we sign it and we give it to the Lord. You know, some of us, we want to fill out the paper first and we want to know what's coming before we sign it. God doesn't work that way. He just wants you to sign the blank contract and then he fills in the details. Maybe you need to surrender your plan to his. Well, John gives us a description of three traps that worldliness will pull us into. So let's look at this caution, number four, of these three traps of the world system. Look at verse 16. For everything that belongs to the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of one's lifestyle, is not from the Father, but is from the world. By the way, these lusts that the world pulls us into it's just the world's way of trying to fulfill the way God wired us in a way that's outside of God's will and his purpose. He gives us a desire for hunger. He gives us hunger. And we might try to fulfill that in the wrong ways and become a glutton or whatever. He gives us a, a, a desire for, for sexual intimacy. And the, and the Bible's way of meeting that need is through covenant marriage. And the world says, oh, no, you can shortcut that. You don't, you don't have to get married. You can just live together. You can just sleep with that person. The world bypasses God's perfect order and design, which is sexual intimacy within the, con- the covenant of marriage. See, the world does that with everything, everything. It's distorted, it's a lie, it's a trick of the enemy. And so John describes those, first of all, the lusts of the flesh. I'm not going to read the lists, multiple lists in the New Testament of what those are, but you can, you can look, go to Galatians 5 and read that. So one commentator called it the ugly list. The lusts of the flesh being... This, this desire to gratify your needs outside of God's perfect plan and purpose for you. He mentions, number two, the lust of the eyes. You ever heard the saying, feast your eyes on this one? Feast your eyes on that? Watching the cooking shows, they say you eat with your eyes first. Have you all heard that one? Boy, you look at it, you see it, and you say, man, that looks good. I think I want that. Thirdly, the pride of one's lifestyle. Most, many translations say the pride of life, but I like the Holman translation, the pride of one's lifestyle. That's, that's a description of wanting to, to attain things to impress others. I read this usually around Christmas time, but I thought I'd read it again today. It's the story of Mr. and Mrs. Thing. Mr. and Mrs. Thing are very pleasant and successful people. At least that's the verdict of most people who tend to measure success with a thing, thingometer. When the thingamometer is put to work in the life of Mr. and Mrs. Thing, the result is startling. There he is sitting down on a luxurious and very expensive thing, almost hidden by a large number of other things. 
Things to sit on, things to sit at, things to cook on, things to eat from, all shiny new things. Things to amuse and things to give pleasure and things to watch and things to play. Things for the big thing in which they live and things for the kitchen and things for the bedroom. Things on four wheels and things on two wheels. And there in the middle are Mr. and Mrs. Thing, smiling and pleased pink with things, thinking of more things to add to their things, secure in their castle of things. Well, Mr. Thing, I have some bad news for you. I just want you to know that your things cannot last. There's going to be an end to them, and that's something to think about. Well, it's time for bed. Put out the cat. Make sure to lock the door. Make sure that some thing thing taker doesn't come in and take your things. And that's the way life goes, doesn't it? And when someday, when you die, they will put only one thing in the box, you. I don't know who this might capture today, but there is a subtle desire in the Christian community to want to be wealthy so that you can say, look at everything I've got and everything I've done. Things. Things. That's the pride of one's lifestyle. There's nothing wrong with things, but when they become your focus and you become prideful of those, you have to be careful. There's a story in the Old Testament. I'm, I want to look there. Joshua chapter 7. Let's, let's look there. It summarizes the caution. Where is Joshua? I found it finally. The caution of the traps that are out there, and, and watch this progression. In Joshua chapter 7, the story, it's the, it's the event of the children of Israel going into the promised land, and God gives them this incredible victory over Jericho. Remember, they marched around the city of Jericho, and, and the walls came a-tumbling down. And they were so excited, and God gave them a command. Basically, he said, don't take any of the treasure, any of the spoils of war. You leave that there. That's to be committed to the Lord. That's his. And a guy named Achan decided that he could have some of that stuff. And through a, a process of God narrowing it down to Achan's family and then finally to Achan, you have Achan's confession in verse 20. Joshua is the leader and he confronts Achan. And Achan replied to Joshua, it is true, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I did. Listen to this. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful cloak from Babylon, 200 shekels and a bar of, gold, of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them, and I took them. You can see for yourself they are concealed in the ground inside my tent. Did you see that? He saw, he coveted, he took, he concealed. That's the way sin works. That's the way the trap of the enemy works. The the lust of the eyes, you see it, you want it. The lust of the flesh, you, you have this desire to have it so that you've got to have it. I've got to have that new model car or whatever. I've got to have it. And you become consumed with that. Then you begin to covet it. And then when you realize that it, has, it is sin, you try to hide that from the Lord. Watch out for those traps, John says. Number five. As I was thinking about those traps and the progression of sin... I was looking at how Scripture gives us this picture of the decline or the collapse of a Christian into worldliness. So let's look at that collapse of a worldly believer. 
I like what Warren Wiersbe says. He says, the world gets into a Christian through his heart. It starts off with a friendship with the world. Number one, James says, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be the world's friend becomes God's enemy. Friendship with the world. You begin to like the things of the world. Now, don't, don't misunderstand me. We are supposed to be friends with the people of the world. You, get, you got that? Sometimes we get it all messed up. We're, we're supposed to love the world, people, and get involved with them, but we're not to love worldliness. And this is what happens to begin with. We, we become friends with that system, that, that way of thinking. We start to embrace the values of the world. We start to think the way the world thinks. We follow our favorite sports hero or media person or musician, and we listen to them talk and wax eloquent about their values, which are usually liberal, uh, distorted values. And we start to embrace those values. And you would say, you could sit here and you could answer every, every Sunday school question about God and Jesus. And you'd sound just like a good, growing Christian. But if we were to really begin to ask you, how do you feel about this value? How do you feel about the, the rights of the unborn? How do you feel about life? How do you feel about the sanctity of marriage? And you, you can pretty soon realize that some of us have embraced the world's values. That's friendship with the world. Then secondly, the next progression in the collapse is to be stained by the world. James says, pure and undefiled religion before our God and Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself un, unstained by the world. That's purity. That's holiness. The first part is to embrace the values of the world. That's friendship with the world. And then we begin to do the things and think the thoughts and have the desires and our hearts begin to change and we are stained by the world. And we fall into that sin, whatever it is, that characterizes that world system. And we're stained. God says, I want lives of holiness and purity. You know one reason why the church in America is, is declining? It's because people are not living holy lives. We look like the culture. Number three, we become conformed to the world. And that's where I was going with that, conformed to the world. I think your outline has Romans 12.1. It should have Romans 12.2. Romans 12.1 says, I, I, present you, I beseech you to present your bodies as living sacrifices. Verse 2 says, do not be conformed to this world or to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do not be conformed to this world, to this age. There's a book called Unprotected written in 2006 by a, uh, I can't remember the author, but in it he, he, he quotes a campus a psychiatrist, a, a minister to college students, a, a, a psychiatrist to college students. And this is what he says about the world he lives in. And I thought this describes how we have become conformed to the world. He says, radical politics pervades my profession. The common, sense, common sense has vanished. Dangerous behaviors are a personal choice now. Judgments are prohibited. They might offend. Where I work, we're stuck on certain issues, but we neglect others. We ask about child abuse, but not about last week's hookups. We want to know how many cigarettes and coffees she has each day, but not how many abortions she had in her past. We strive to combat suicide, but we shun the discussion of God as the ultimate meaning of life. That's our world. That's our culture. Do you find yourself embracing those values that our culture has? Very subtle. 
we're friends with the world, we're stained by the world, then we become conformed to the world. And people look at us and they cannot tell any difference between us and the world system. Number four, Paul mentions this, that we might be condemned with the world. He says in 1 Corinthians eleven thirty two, when we're judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we may not be condemned with the world. Now, again, hear me. He's not saying that you can lose your salvation. We believe to be in Christ is to be secure in Christ for eternity. And it's not just once saved, always saved. It's if saved, always saved. If you genuinely trusted Christ as your Savior, he's not saying you're going to be condemned with the world and spend eternity in hell. He's, he says that you're going, to be, you're, going to be, you're going to lose your testimony. You're going to be the kind of person that Paul talks about who, who gets into heaven as it's their fire escape and, and they get into heaven smelling like smoke. Condemned with the world. What a shame. What a collapse. I think John sums it all up in this last statement here in verse 17. So let's look at that, number six. There's a contrast. So he contrasts these two ways of living in verse 17. I really could have just preached on verse 15 and 17. You would have gotten it, I hope, but couldn't help it. And the world with its lust is passing away. But the one who does God's will remains forever. Look at that. The world with its lust is passing away. The first way of living is to live, live for time, for the temporary, for the right now, for the today, to live for time. The world with its lust is passing away. Here's what he's saying. This world system is not going to last forever. He's already told us, Paul told us, you're, you're strangers, you're, your citizenship is in heaven You're aliens here on earth. You don't belong here because now you belong to the Lord. But many of us live for right now. Folks, those decisions you struggle to make in the the big picture of eternity, think about it. Those choices you make to disobey, those choices you make to to compromise your convictions, those those are... like a vapor. The Bible says our life is a vapor. I, I, I want my life to count for Christ. I want those decisions to be measured not in time and, and right now. Jim Elliott, the missionary who was um, martyred for his faith, sharing, sharing the gospel, said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Folks, some of you are clinging to stuff and things and relationships and attitudes and hurts and we need to let them go. Life is too short. Don't live for time. But look at the last part of verse 17. But the one who does God's will remains forever. You can live for eternity. You can live for eternity. You can live with a sense of calling, a sense of purpose. By the way, as I looked at these two contrasts, the right now, the day Right now, time is what we see. Eternity, the spiritual world, is what we can't see. Here's what John is saying and the rest of Scripture is saying. Don't live for what you can see right now. Live for eternity. It's it's, it's unseen. It's It's the spiritual realm. I want us to look at uh, this story in Genesis I know I can find Genesis. 
I want us to close with the contrast between two lives, two men, and see how it illustrates these two world philosophies, these, these philosophies of living. Genesis chapter 13, verse 10. Abram and Lot are given this opportunity to settle in the new land and, and their, their people are growing and their, their flocks and herds are growing. And so Abram says to Lot, his nephew says, I'll, I'll let you pick wherever you want to live. It's a gracious move. Look at verse 10. See if any of this sounds familiar. Lot looked out and saw that the entire Jordan Valley as far as Zoar was well watered everywhere like the Lord's garden in the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And Lot, so, verse 11, so Lot chose the entire Jordan Valley. The Bible says they separated from each other. Look at verse 12. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, but Lot lived in the cities of the valley and set up his tent near Sodom. And if you know this, with the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, it was such a wicked, wicked place that God destroyed those cities. So Lot sees it. Then it says he pitches his tent near Sodom. Turn the page with me to, page, to chapter 14, verse 12. And, and it speaks of Abraham's, nep- Abraham's nephew Lot and his possessions, for he was living in Sodom. Do you see the progression? Here's Lot. He looks at this valley, and it looks really nice. And he sees and he says, I want to live there. And he makes that choice, and he's not going to make this big, bold move to move into this city of, of total paganism, immorality, homosexuality, all that was going on in Sodom. He's not going to make this decision to live there, but it says he pitched his tent near Sodom. So he saw it. He wanted to be there, but he's just going to be near it. But the logical progression of things is next you find him living in Sodom. And if it wasn't for God's grace and Abram, if it wasn't for God's grace... He would have perished there in that city. That, that's what you call being condemned with the world. Lot lost his testimony. But if you look at chapter 13, again in Genesis. Verse 3 and 4. And the Bible says that, speaking of Abram, he went by stages from the Negev to the Bethel to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had, had formerly been. Notice that his tent had formerly been, he was moving. To the site to where he had built the altar. And Abram called on the name of Yahweh there. Abram pitched his tent and he built his altar. The altar is a place of worship. The altar is a place where he called on Yahweh, the Lord God. Lot pitched his altar and built his tent. Abram's tent pegs were, I believe, shallow enough to where when it came time to move, he could move them because he knew that this world was not his home. The Bible says that God told Abraham, you're going to have a city that you haven't seen yet. That's where your home is. But he built his altar because that was the foundation of his life, and Lot didn't. Let me ask you today, how deep are your tent pegs in this world? How deep are you grounded in this world system and these values that go so contrary to Scripture? 
and you say, Pastor Kevin, I'm struggling in my Christian life. Maybe your tent pegs are too deep. Have you built your altar? Have you said, my life is going to be built? We sang it. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but holy trust in Jesus' name. Let's pitch our tents and build our altars. Let's don't love the world system. Let's love the Lord, okay? Pray with me.